Senator, my religious beliefs uh, have no relevance to my judging. I judge based on the Constitution and laws of the United States. Do you want to see the court overturn Roe v. Well, if we put another two or perhaps three justices on, that's really what's going to be, ha that will happen. Welcome to What's Left, a podcast from BuzzFeed News Opinion, where we talk with people at the crossroads of the new American politics. I'm Sarah Leonard, your host in New York City. With conservative Brett Kavanaugh poised to join the Supreme Court, abortion opponents are closer to ending access to safe and legal abortion than any time since the landmark Roe v. Wade decision of 1973. So what might a post-Roe America look like? A post-Roe world will look a lot like the world we have now, but only more harsh and more severe. Willie Parker is a doctor who provides abortions in states like Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi, where that's already close to a reality. Today, as Kavanaugh's nomination is being debated and we're considering what a post-Roe landscape could look like, in a way, you're working in terrain that looks almost post-Roe already. And I'm thinking of Mississippi that has one abortion clinic left. Um, and so I think that it's hard to imagine exactly what that feels like, especially if you live, for example, in some parts of the Northeast. I live in New York City. We have clinics. And I was wondering if you could speak to what that experience is like. I think Mississippi provides uh, an excellent example of what happens when uh, it's left up to the states and for the states uh, that would outlaw abortion, um, if they could, uh, where, because they haven't been able to, they've made it uh, practically almost impossible to get abortion, even though it remains legal. So, for example, in Mississippi, uh, there's one clinic in the whole state. It's in Jackson. Uh, yet, uh, uh, one of the highest unintended pregnancy rates uh, and teen pregnancy rates in the state and therefore in, in, in the country uh, is in the Mississippi Delta, which is three hours away. The Mississippi Delta is notorious for its poverty. Mississippi is notorious for uh, lacking medical access sex education. So a woman in the Mississippi Delta, when she finds out she's pregnant, she has to first make it to Jackson, Mississippi, uh, which is about a three-hour drive. Uh, she may have challenges around transportation. Uh, she's living in poverty. She uh, usually will have already have uh, children, as many uh, women who have abortions are already mothers. So she has to arrange child care. If she's, if she's employed, she has to get off, off work. I'll never forget, I saw a young lady, she was a college freshman, had aspirations to become a physician. Uh, she and I bonded and connected uh, right away. She found herself five weeks pregnant. She uh, was trying to raise the money to have a medication abortion. And so she came on her first day, we had to do the mandatory counseling in Mississippi. It's mandated that you do face-to-face -face counseling with a physician. So I met her and counseled her with regard to our options uh, and, and, and was taken by her in terms of really wanting to help her uh, stay on track to get into medical school. Uh, the time where she, was, she would have come for her care, she didn't show. Uh, and so she was five weeks when I saw her and she was eligible for a medication abortion. So five weeks goes by, another five weeks go by, and another five weeks go by. So it's been two and a half months. And then on the final day that she could have an abortion in the state of Mississippi, she shows up 
And when I asked her what had happened to her, one, she had problems raising the money as a college student. Two, uh, it was during her finals when, and so she couldn't take another 24 hours off to get to the clinic. At that time, the clinic was only open a couple of days a week because of access issues and having not enough providers to be able to keep the clinic open every day. So there was this perfect storm of this young woman who, simply because she was in the state of Mississippi and simply because she was a, a college student without discretionary income, um, she was delayed for a total of almost 10 weeks delayed from getting care that had those barriers not been in place, she would have been able to get her care. So that's just an anecdote of what will, it will look like on a national level if Kavanaugh becomes justice and a row is overturned. So women's access will even more than it is now depend on what their zip code is. And when you have women in that sort of situation, there has been a rise, right, in women doing their own abortions because they can't scrape together the money or make the long trip, the sorts of things you're describing. Have you seen patients who have tried to self-abort? I've one, I've seen women who attempted to manage their own abortion and, and self-abort, as you described it. And most of those women are operating with information that is tantamount to home remedy. One woman I saw that I talk about in my book had found on the internet a recipe for using uh, a green mango and parsley in some sort of combination, uh, placing a part of the parsley into uh, the vaginal cavity and do some amount of, of consuming green mango and parsley that it would cause her to abort. When I saw her, she, uh, that, that method did not work for her, and so she was farther along. But part of her rationale for trying to self-abort in the first place was, one, she didn't have the finances. But it will easily become not only a matter of finances, but women feeling desperate uh, and trying to manage abortion for themselves. There have been cases of women who have tried to instrument themselves. But by and far, uh, what will happen more frequently is women are going to the Internet to find access to what we know are effective medications like mesoprostol and mifepristone. There are women who have severe medical conditions that where if they're going to end their pregnancies, it should be done under closed medical supervision. What it does speak to is the fact that there's not a law or a rule or the ability to incarcerate or shame women enough that when they decide that they're going to end a pregnancy, they're, and they're determined to do so, there's no barrier that's going to prevent them from making the effort. And one of the side effects, of course, of the climate around abortion rights is all of the shame and so forth that you're describing, the efforts to shame women, the pain that people feel having to deal with the disapproval of them for having an abortion. In your role as a doctor, does that involve essentially counseling and counseling women in the face of quite a lot of pressure from all kinds of different sources, not to have an abortion. Well, it, it does. My, uh, in my effort to practice medicine in a holistic manner, I am consciously as concerned about a woman's psychic and emotional and spiritual well-being as I am about her physical well-being. But that stigma and that shame is so prevalent that 
Uh, that for me sometimes is a, it's quite a difficult task because I'm trying to turn voices off that are already inside her head, even when we can get her inside the building away from the protesters physically. I want to look back to your past. You didn't always hold these opinions about abortion. In fact, you grew up with very different opinions about abortion. And I wonder if you could describe that and also tell me where the epiphany came, where you really moved on this issue. Something as personal as one's uh, morality and their decision-making, that can be uh, coerced or forced, uh, violates the very notion of what it means to have conscience and to make uh, a conscientious decision. And so uh, I had been a proselytizing, you know, I, I'd done street corner witnessing, and so I knew uh, and had a real, really, a, a real um, disdain for what I called uh, a cold call approach to the gospel of trying to win people over to something that has to be personal for them. After listening to a sermon by Dr. Martin Luther King, where he tells the story of the Good Samaritan and in substance, just says that the, the Good Samaritan was the person who stopped to help a traveler when everybody else failed to do so. And what made the Samaritan good was his ability to reverse the question of concern and to, instead of asking what will happen to himself for helping, uh, he asked what will happen to this person if I don't stop to help. And I saw myself in that story as, an, as a woman's health provider. You have, in fact, compared the fight to abortion rights to the civil rights movement. And I wonder if you could tell me why. It is a form of a civil rights movement in that the regulatory authority and the governance of health care has been hijacked by people who have politicized abortion. But I compare it to something that makes people angrier, and that is I compare forced childbirth to slavery. Um, and that, uh, that, that really antagonizes people who are hijacking the language of civil rights uh, and trying to seize the moral high ground that Dr. King established with the human rights framework of uh, the civil rights movement. I compare the fact that women who are, have their right to end pregnancies or to de- determine their own reproductive destinies taken from them are, are comparable to enslaved Africans who were captured and had their uh, labor stolen from them by having their their agency, their right to decide the fate of their lives taken from them. Dr. King once said in a sermon that the immorality of slavery was that it relegated people to the status of things. The people uh, should always be uh, means and not ends. Uh, and by that I mean that uh, when, when captured Africans had their labor stolen from them under threat of loss of life and severe and harsh punishment, they became relegated to things. In a similar fashion, when women are denied the right to control their bodies in the end pregnancies that they can't have, uh, when they lose the right to be self-determining about their lives, they become things. Women are reduced to the status of incubators. And you mentioned the sort of hijacking of the civil rights legacy, and something you write about in your book is Glenn Beck in 2010 did this civil rights march where, of course, his message was anti-abortion, anti-feminist, and so forth. And you actually describe wanting desperately to speak out against this hijacking of the legacy. And at the time, you were working at Planned Parenthood directing clinics in the D.C. metro area, and their policy was was not to directly confront this in the media. 
And so you did it on your own. Something that has been on my mind a lot is whether the existing pro-choice strategy is working, because it seems to me like it's not. And I'm interested in what you think about that. I'm specifically thinking about after Trump's election, there was a national day of action against Planned Parenthood where people showed up and protested. And a lot of people wanted to go and and counter-protest and show their support for Planned Parenthood. And Planned Parenthood said, no, don't go to the clinics, don't cause a scene near the clinics. And some people complied and some people didn't. But is this strategy of non-confrontation working? Uh, well, uh, I am a big uh, supporter of Planned Parenthood. And even though I don't work for them, I will always work with them. One of the things I would say, uh, that strategy of non-engagement and of battling in the courts and through legislation uh, might be the right and the effective uh, strategy for Planned Parenthood as an organization. Before I could say that that's not working, I would say that what we should probably back out a little bit and look and see that no movement has been ever been monolithic. And the reproductive rights, health, and justice movement isn't a monolithic movement. Dr. King said that the forces of ill will have been far more creative in their pursuit of injustice than the forces of goodwill have been in in justice. As a single tactic of not engaging people who are anti-abortion, I agree with the premise that as a single strategy, it's not working or it's not going to work. But I would be reticent to throw, uh, to say that one approach is the best approach. Sure. And if, in fact... Kavanaugh is confirmed and Roe is overturned, as many people suspect will happen. If abortion is effectively outlawed in the states in which you currently work, what will you do? I would say, one, I will, until it's over, it's not over, I would, I'm doubling down on the notion that we have to delay or defeat this nomination, but in the event that we can't, a post-world world will look a lot like the world we have now, but only more harsh and more severe. So if we look at the challenges that women are facing in states like Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia, what I will be able to do will be largely dependent upon what the lay of the land looks like after, after these changes are implemented. We know that there are many states that already have a, a, they have trigger laws in place, which there are states now where abortion is legal, where they have set it up so that in the event that Roe is overturned, abortion will become illegal in that state. So that means that what, what is available right now in Mississippi may not even be available at all post-Roe. So that means those of us who provide are going to have to figure out in the places that remain, how do we create mechanisms to get women to the care that they need? I can tell you people who are already setting up clandestine networks to, to self-abort. We will have to figure out ways to uh, work around the system because the greater good will always be to assure the health and well-being of women, and that is not a legal definition. Women shouldn't die simply because somebody has decided that they don't like the idea of abortion. And so I will live my conscience, and I will figure out what feels to me like the, the right moral and ethical thing to do under those circumstances. But in the meantime, I'm going I'm to continue to fight to make sure that that apocalyptic scenario doesn't become a reality. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Parker. My pleasure. 
Abortion rights stalwarts like NARAL and Planned Parenthood have fought creeping abortion restrictions in court and on Capitol Hill. But until recently, anti-abortion activists seemed to own the streets. Kate Castle belongs to a new generation of activists who are turning the tables on abortion opponents. Hey, Kate. Hey. So you're a member of New York for Abortion Rights, which is a grassroots abortion rights organization. And so I want to start by asking you, when did you get started and why? Doesn't New York have plenty of pro-choice organizations? So in February 2017, um, after Trump's inauguration, there were these uh, anti-abortion actions planned around the country um, targeting Planned Parenthood groups, centers. And in response to that, there was a lot of um, talk about counter-protests, and some of them were set up on Facebook in New York. So counter-protests to protest the Planned Parenthood protesters, basically pro-choice rallies. Yeah, which when you go to an abortion clinic now, you expect that there be antis outside, and it's become so normalized. And so counter-demonstration is like a way uh, in, in which to sort of flip the script on them and say, like, you can't do this unopposed. And so that was the goal. We had been told no by PBNYC. Planned Parenthood, New York. Yeah, Planned Parenthood, New York City. They said that they didn't want counter-demonstrators outside because it would confuse the patients and cause more chaos outside of the clinic, and that patients were going to seek medical care and not to encounter a political message. But one of our... Our issues with that is that patients already encounter a political message when they go into an abortion clinic, um, and it's just the wrong one. And so we decided that we were going to do it anyways. And we got 200 people to come outside um, the Margaret Sanger Center in New York City. We turned out a great crowd, and we did a sort of red uh, red stocking-style speak-out where people told their stories about their own abortion experiences and sort of why that they wanted to be a part of this fight. And you've continued with some action since then, right? We formed as an ad hoc group originally, but since then we've been organizing uh, counter demonstrations regularly, usually when 40 Days for Life is targeting Planned Parenthood, or we've also done actions in the Bronx, uh, Bronx abortion. And we've also done uh, like educational events and we uh, most recently with uh, the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund, sort of just to raise awareness about abortion access in the United States. Obviously, we're luckier here in New York City with access, but making those connections around the country is really one of our main goals. Right. And I know that specifically there is a church near Planned Parenthood in New York City that after Mass, I think once a month, sends folks to protest outside of the Planned Parenthood and that New York for Abortion Rights has protested outside the church to try to keep them from doing that. That would be a controversial tactic in some places, perhaps even in New York City. And I wonder what the response to that has been. If the antis are in our spaces, we're going to go to theirs. Um, and we're going to make sure that everybody knows that these antis are harassing patients because they've for so long not been opposed in any way. So we go to the old St. Patrick's Basilica, and that's down the street from Margaret Sanger is on uh, Mott, and we basically just rally and chant in front of the church, saying, you know, like, this church harasses women. And then then we move um, down to the clinic where they we march alongside them. Um, and because when we stand outside directly across the street from 
Margaret Sanger, they are forced to move across to the opposite street, uh, so they can't interact with patients at all. So that's a huge victory. And what has the response been from larger pro-choice institutions? You mentioned that Planned Parenthood didn't want counter-protesting. So how are you dealing with that? We originally were trying to work with them. I like had many conversations with their uh, their political wing and trying to make these arguments that we like we're willing to be to change our tactics as long as they as long as we can be outside the clinic. But they haven't pulled it at all. And um, basically, we've just decided that we have to do it uh, without their support. Um, there's differing opinions within Planned Parenthood. Um, I know people that work inside of that clinic and are supportive of what we do. We've never had a bad response from a patient. Planned Parenthood is sort of the, the most corporate um, abortion provider in the country. And the way that they're structured uh, makes it really difficult because the people making decisions aren't necessarily the people providing care or the people um, in the clinics. Um, I used to be an abortion doula there. Um, for two years and actually got um, forced to resign uh, because of my organizing with New York City for abortion rights. Maybe one way of thinking of it, too, is obviously Planned Parenthood clinics are extremely important in providing abortion access in the United States. A lot of hospitals don't provide it. And so they're providing this service, but the argument of New York for abortion rights, it seems like, is there's a piece of the movement that's missing. So, like, what is that piece? I think that piece is the grassroots organizing. Planned Parenthood is really top-down uh, in the way that they approach this issue. And just as we can see in recent events, uh, like union busting in Colorado and the way that they decide to close down clinics, we think that what's missing is a grassroots movement for abortion access and reproductive justice. And we feel that it's necessary to fight back. For so long, Planned Parenthood and these other liberal feminist organizations have just been minimizing abortion. Um, you've probably seen the bags that say, like, oh, like, I went to uh, Planned Parenthood and all I got was a pap smear. Um, and that's just re-stigmatizing abortion. Um, we need to be able to really call it out and fight back against uh, the gains that the anti-abortion movement has won over the past 40 years. Do you see yourself as part of a larger reproductive justice movement? Yeah, definitely. I think um, abortion access is fundamental to reproductive justice in that most of the people that are impacted by these by these restrictions are people that are low income, that are people of color, that these are the people that are being hurt by these laws. Right. And given that it looks like Kavanaugh may be confirmed, may sit on the court, may help to overturn Roe, what are the organization's plans or what are your plans in the post-Roe world? Some of the emails that I've been getting from NARAL, um, and I went to this rally a couple of weeks ago, and um, everyone was, the signs that NARAL made were like, protect our health care. Um, and that's not actually fighting back against once the, what the problem is. Um, it's, we need to free abortion on demand. That's a slogan that we've been using um, at New York City for abortion rights um, to sort of fight back against the stigma um, about abortion. And that's not to say that abortion is the only issue. Abortion is only one pregnancy outcome. 
you know, something that we talk about as doulas is that reproductive health care is a full spectrum. And abortion is only one part of that. And we need to refocus this debate on pregnant people, on their lived experiences. And that's what matters. But because the right has won so much ground on abortion, that's why we feel it's necessary to fight back specifically about abortion. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Sarah. In talking to Dr. Parker and talking to Kate, I thought a lot about my own experience as someone who hosts abortion patients in New York when they come to the city for two-day abortions. I'm part of a program called Haven. And I hosted a woman once who was young, she had a kid, and she felt that she was doing what was right for herself and for her kid. At the same time, she was racked with guilt. She was in pain, physical and emotional, and it had taken everything in her to sign the paperwork to have her abortion. But she said that she was doing what was right for herself and her kid. And in talking to her, it seemed to me that society had taken all of its anxieties about women's bodies, sexuality, reproduction, the rights, religious obsessions, and put them all on the shoulders of women. And if there's anything I got from talking to Dr. Parker and talking to Kate, it's some hope that in the post-Roe world, there will be a movement that will take this wildly unfair burden off their shoulders and send it right back where it came from. That's it for this week's show. Hit us up at what's left at buzzfeed.com with any questions or comments. And be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We put out new episodes every Monday. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference and helps new people learn about the show. What's Left is produced by me, Sarah Leonard, Patrick McMenamin, Ben Dalton, Dara Levy, Dan Bauza, and Jake Bunger. What's Left is a production of BuzzFeed News Opinion. See you next week when we'll discuss what's left. <laughs>